Welcome to another episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. This story is about voodoo, what it really is, where it came from, and why New Orleans sees it as a misunderstood past they'd like to keep out of the tourist brochures, either by defining it as just another local religion or limiting its appeal by passing it off as pure tourist kitsch. But for years, the public perception of voodoo has been one of secret rituals, the casting of spells, the more entertaining ones involving a piece of hair of the intended victim, or better yet, a miniature likeness of them wearing a piece of their clothing, calling back the dead, wild orgies, and all kinds of suspected paranormal mayhem, from levitation to exorcism. Websites are out there today promising to soften the heart of a loved one with a $25 love spell, or blaze a path for you to instant riches with an instant wealth spell for only $35. And did I mention the revenge spell, the one that brings instant misfortune to that person who fired you for only $50? If you dig deep enough, it all exists under the cover of darkness in New Orleans. Some of it is pure kitsch, and much more of it real and kept far from sight. A big piece of the story starts at Cemetery One in New Orleans and the tomb of the biggest, baddest voodoo mama that ever graced New Orleans, Marie Laveau. And we'll get to her story in a moment. But first, we need to set the stage for you and explain what makes New Orleans and its people so different from other cities and cultures. And it's definitely unique. New Orleans, Louisiana is one of the most fascinating cities in the world. And regardless of who you ask, you'll get a different reason from them as to why they do or don't like it. Some say they love it. Others say it changed after Katrina. And there are parts of New Orleans you used to be able to go to after dark, but no longer. These days, the Convention Visitors Bureau maintains a good website, directing tourists to the cleanest and safest corners of town, taking time to point out the most popular attractions, from the National World War II Museum to the St. Louis Cathedral. There are walking tours, bus tours, trolley tours, ghost and cemetery tours, and even Katrina tours. And it soon becomes obvious to anyone who spends more than a day here that New Orleans is a huge melting pot of different cultures. You can make the same argument about New York, London, Paris, or San Francisco, but New Orleans has a strangeness about it that captures the imagination and adds a little fear of the unknown. Maybe it's the heat. The way it rises from the streets in the summer. Slow, dizzying, with the sense of bougainvillea and moss-laden trees, and the shaded cemeteries and courtyards that seem to call forth memories of bygone eras. It's special. New Orleans, in the old areas at least, leans on French and Spanish influence. And it's an odd collection of Choctaw, Jew, Sicilian, French-speaking Africans, Haitian blacks, English-speaking African-Americans. Germans, Filipinos, Vietnamese, Creole, Cajun, and Irish. The Creoles are a product of the blending of French nobility, the Spanish, and later the Jean de Couleur Libre, or free people of color. These black Creoles brought Zydeco music, a blending of French songs with African Caribbean rhythms. The city is known worldwide for Creole cooking, the words okra and gumbo having been brought over from Africa. The Cajuns, as most of you already know, are descendants of French Acadians. Hear the similarity between the words Acadian and Cajun? That's where Cajun came from. 
who were expelled from Nova Scotia by the British in 1755 and started the long trek down to Louisiana, ending up in the Bayou Country. This whole pot of cultures was simmering following the Louisiana Purchase Act of 1803, which brought Les Americans in by the thousands. Then over a period of 200 years, you throw in jazz, Creole, and rhythm and blues music on top of all the good cooking, and you had the beginnings of a world-class melting pot and party capital of the world, maybe lacking the commercial glitz of Las Vegas, but making up for it with its own dangerous, edgy, and sometimes downright weird nighttime flavor. Some people have called it America's most haunted city, and that's probably true as all those graveyards, even in the daytime, will give you the heebie-jeebies. Most of them employ above-ground tombs due to the high water levels and the fact that major hurricanes like Katrina have a tendency to raise the dead, so to speak, and not in a way you would want to experience. It may also be America's most occult city, owing to the presence of voodoo, a belief that denotes a connection between the living and the dead, that connection being made through a variety of dance, music, singing, incantations, and in some types of voodoo, the creative use of snakes, which are liked to voodoo's main spirit, Legba, which connects all the other spirits. Harry Potter, a Slytherin, would have been right at home here. Over the centuries, the dominance of the Catholic religion and local culture has blended with voodoo, making God the main spirit and connecting all other spirits to him. So you may get three different definitions of Legba from three different voodoo worshipers. But as you peel back the layers and get closer to the voodoo that was practiced on the western or slave coast of Africa and brought to Haiti and St. Dominga by slaves, now the darker side appears. In the language of Dahomey and Nigeria, known as Fon, the word voodoo means spirit, defined as an invisible, mysterious force that can intervene in human affairs. Blacks forced from their homelands to work the slave farms in Haiti and San Domingue saw their families broken up, their social structure non-existent, and their homes and way of life left far behind them. The only thing they could keep was their beliefs, and efforts were made there to divest them of their old beliefs and replace them with Catholicism. The result was an outer belief system that took on the symbols of Catholicism, and an inner, private religion that still held on to the old ways, including worship of the Loa, which were supernatural entities. In the wake of the Haitian slave revolt from 1781 to 1804, which, researchers say, was initiated by a very intense voodoo ceremony, thousands of Haitian and San Domingo slaves were moved by the fleeing plantation owners to New Orleans, where they had French connections, and it was there that voodoo grew and prospered. On Rampart Street, just outside the French Quarter, today, you'll find Louis Armstrong Park, where you can take a relaxing stroll along well-manicured lawns and bayou waterway in a well-planned, green, fenced environment. Back in 1724, in the early days of slavery in America, Code Noir was implemented, giving slaves Sundays off, and they would gather along levees, in public squares, or any place that accommodated a big crowd of people. On Bayou St. John, at a clearing called La Place Congo, various ethnic groups would gather, each sharing their particular customs of music and dance. By 1817, the ruling government in New Orleans 
limited all citywide celebrations to just Congo Square. And as a result, the crowds became larger. It also became a marketplace, and slaves with particular talents for selling crafts, services, and very likely spiritual guidance could earn money and use that money to buy their freedom from their owners. In this way, many former slaves earned their freedom. Visitors from all over the world who had heard of this unique place flocked to see it and listened to the music coming from the drums, hollowed-out gourds, banjos, bambolas, bonzas, and quill pipes, which were made from reeds strung together like pan flutes, as well as marimbas, tambourines, and triangles. With the music came the dances named the Congo, the Caribbean, and the Juba. In 1819, the architect Benjamin Latrobe described the scene this way upon seeing what he described as a group of five to six hundred slaves assembled there, ornamented with tails of smaller wild beasts with fringes, little bells, and shells and balls jingling about the dancers' legs and arms. The women wore the latest fashions of silk, gauze, muslin, and percal dresses, while the males covered themselves in oriental and Indian dress wrapped about with a sash of the same sort. In addition to the dancing, voodoo worshippers would gather there in Congo Square to perform their ceremonies, while throngs of curious onlookers would gape at the dancers and voodoo priests and priestesses who performed their rites at these ceremonies. It was a way for those blacks to exert influence over their white counterparts, for they had a knowledge and a power that the whites did not, and it could be good juju or bad juju depending upon the need. When it started to attract outsiders and became a show, the participants, all smart enough to know that outsiders brought money, hammed it up accordingly and increased the size of the surrounding market on Sundays. One person who was well known as a voodoo priestess at these ceremonies was Marie Laveau, and if anyone knew how to capitalize on showmanship, she did. To help with that, she was reportedly a great beauty for her time, and she didn't limit it to the Sunday performances in front of ogling tourists. She arranged some spectacular private shows that earned her fame, fortune, and power as well. According to author Hauk in 1996, she led voodoo dances in Congo Square and sold charms and potions from her home in the 1830s. Sixty years later, she was still holding ceremonies and looked as young as she did when she started. Her rites at St. John's Bayou on the banks of Lake Poncer Train resembled a scene from hell with bonfires, naked dancing, orgies, and animal sacrifices. She had a strange power over police and judges and succeeded in saving several criminals from hanging. Writer Charles Gandolfo, author of Marie Laveau of New Orleans, states, Some believe that Marie had a mysterious birth in the sense that she may have come from the spirits or as an envoy from the saints. On the other hand, a plaque on her supposed tomb, placed by the Catholic Church, refers to her as this notorious voodoo queen. So who was the real Marie Laveau? She began life as a free woman of color in 1794, as the illegitimate daughter of a rich Creole plantation owner, Charles Laveau, and his Haitian slave mistress. In 1819, at the age of 25, she wed Jacques Paris in the St. Louis Cathedral. Paris, who, like her, was a free person, disappeared six months later, and she was hung with the title of Widow Paris, but corrected that one year later when she began a second common-law marriage to Captain Christophe de Glapion, another free person of color, with whom she would have 15 children. 
De Clapion had served with distinction with a battalion of men in San Domingo under Daquin and fought with Andy Jackson in 1815. She was very much attached to the people of New Orleans, and although she was best known for her connection with voodoo, she also worked as a nurse, and many stories have been told about her exploits nursing the sick through plagues like yellow fever, which struck that area. She lived from birth to death in her house on St. Anne, between Rampart and Burgundy Streets, and had met many notables who had stayed in the city, from Aaron Burr to Lafayette, who she had welcomed to her home. The youngest of her daughters, Marie, would grow up to look very much like her mother and follow in her mother's footsteps, causing many people to believe that Marie Laveau had found the secret to eternal youth. More on Marie, too, in just a few minutes. Marie Laveau was introduced to voodoo by various voodoo doctors, practitioners of a popularized voodoo that emphasized curative and occult magic and seemed to have a decidedly commercial side to it. She was also a practicing Catholic, attending mass daily, according to researchers. Her own practice began when she teamed up with a heavily tattooed voodoo doctor known by a variety of names as Dr. John, Bayou John, John Bayou, etc., etc., who, according to author Gondolfo in his book Marie Laveau, was the first commercial voodooist in New Orleans to whip up potions and gris-gris, spelled G-R-I-S, G-R-I-S, but pronounced gris-gris, for a price. Grigri, or juju, refers to magic charms or spells, often conjuring bags containing such items as bones, herbs, charms, snakeskin, etc., tied up in a piece of cloth. An interesting note, Dr. John reportedly confessed to friends that his magic was mere humbuggery. He had been known to laugh, writes Robert Talant in Voodoo in New Orleans, 1946, when he told of selling a gullible white woman a small jar of starch and water for $5. And this is as good a time as any to note that there is a world of controversy out there as to the purpose, nature, and power of voodoo. To be fair to all sides, there's an organized religion of voodoo that places God as the center of creation and calls on the spirits he commands to answer prayers. There is a dark side to voodoo that uses processes similar to witchcraft and calls up spirits that you don't want to take home with you, literally or figuratively. And there is a commercial side to voodoo that offers charms, spells, amulets, potions, enough gri to fill a pharmacy, private counseling, healing, and online products, just to name a few. So, pick your poison, as some would say. Does voodoo work? There are many who would say it does. When prayer goes south and becomes dark magic, lots of things can happen. You have or will meet people in your life who will advise you to steer clear of it. But Marie Laveau was doing all she could in the early 1800s to give voodoo a public face. For a while, she earned a living as a hairdresser, catering to a wealthy white clientele and learning their secrets through gossip, giving her insight into their affairs. Laveau bridged the world of white and black with clients and followers of all walks of life who asked her to bring them luck, to cure ailments, to procure them their desired lovers, and to exact revenge on enemies. She sold gri-gri, voodoo dolls, and a variety of dark magic items in the same way a doctor dispenses prescriptions. She knew how to tap into people's darkest wants and needs and made it her business, literally. What is interesting but largely unknown is how much all of this was created by her 
and how much was already in place, but her name pops up everywhere in New Orleans' voodoo beginnings. Amassing stature in the voodoo community of believers, both black and white, she then sought supremacy over her rivals, some 15 other voodoo queens, in various neighborhoods. According to biographer Charles Gandolfo, the curator of the historic New Orleans Voodoo Museum, in his famous book Marie Laveau, he writes, Marie began her takeover process by disposing of her rival queens. If her rituals of Grigri didn't work, Marie, who was a statuesque woman to say the least, met them in the street and physically beat them. This war for supremacy lasted several years until, one by one, all the former queens, under a pledge, agreed to be sub-queens, and if they refused, she ran them out of town. By age 35, Marie Laveau had become New Orleans' most powerful voodoo queen, then or since. She won the approval of the local priest by encouraging her followers to attend Mass. While she charged the rich abundantly, she reportedly gave to the needy and administered to the suffering. Living to the ripe old age of 87, she was Voodoo Incorporated in New Orleans for decades. Her most visible activities, however, were her public rituals. According to A. Antipas, founder of the Marie Laveau House and author of the mysterious Marie Laveau Voodoo Queen, quote, these public displays of voodoo ceremonies, however, revealed nothing of the real religion and became merely entertainment for the curious whites, end quote. More secret rituals, including fertility rituals, took place elsewhere, notably on the shore of Lake Pontchartrain, and that is where the story really gets fun. It's difficult to assess just how much of Marie's rituals were authentic voodoo practice and how much was due to her incredible imagination and obsession for the extreme, known in one word as showmanship. She staged rituals that were simulated orgies. Men and women danced in abandonment after drinking rum and seeming to become possessed by various loas. Seated on an ornate throne as grandmaster of activities, Marie directed the action when she was not actually participating herself. She kept a large snake called Le Grand Zombie that she would dance with in veneration of Dambala, shaking a gourd rattle to summon that snake deity and repeating over and over, hey, Dambala, yay, yay, yay. Once a year, Marie presided over the ritual of St. John's Eve. It began at dusk on June 23rd and ended at dawn on the next day, St. John's Day. Hundreds attended, including reporters and curious onlookers, each of whom was charged a fee. Drum beating, bonfires, animal sacrifice, and other elements, including nude women dancing seductively, characterized the extended ritual. According to author Gandolfo, offerings were made to the appropriate loas for protection, including safeguarding children and others from the Cajun boogeyman, Loop Guru, a werewolf that supposedly fed on the blood of victims. Claims regarding Marie Laveau's alleged powers persist today. She represented herself as a seer and used fortune-telling techniques such as palmistry, which delivers a nice hourly rate even today from the experts. There is no evidence that Marie's clairvoyant abilities were any more successful than those of any other fortune teller, but there's no evidence that they weren't. We know that people attest to the accuracy of a reading because they do not understand the clever techniques involved, like cold reading, so-called because it is accomplished without any foreknowledge. This is an artful method of fishing for information from the sitter while convincing him or her 
that it comes from a mystical source. She was very skilled at this and had the palm reading so wired up that anyone coming to New Orleans for the first time was advised to stop by her house for a fortune-telling session. She could tell a lot from their style of dress, the look of their hands, being hard-worked or soft, the presence of jewelry, and what type of jewelry, their style of speech, their complexion and brightness, a hundred small giveaways that all signal a good fortune teller as to which direction to take the reading. She is reportedly a master of the art. As to the local clientele, her readings may not have been so cold after all. Far from lacking prior information about her clients, as previously discussed, she reputedly used her position as a hairdresser for gossip collecting, discovering that her women clients would talk to her about anything and everything and would divulge some of their most personal secrets to her. She went one step beyond gossip and developed a chain of household informants in most of the prominent homes. So you could probably say she had an intelligence network set up that may have inspired the Pinkertons. Well, who knows, for bigger clients, she might have used the Pinkertons to garner some juicy tidbits. And of course, what is a good spiring without blackmail to pay the bills? Again, according to author Gandolfo, who did a serious amount of research on her. Most of her work for the ladies involved love predicaments. Marie knew the personal secrets of judges, priests, lawyers, doctors, ship captains, architects, military officers, politicians, and most of New Orleans' other leading citizens. She used her knowledge of their indiscretions and blackmailed them into doing whatever she wanted. She was then financially reimbursed by her elite female clients. Most of the time, this was how her love potions and gree-gree worked, which is apparently 100% of the time. Legends of her money earned through her connections is prolific. For example, it was said that Marie had a strange power over police and judges and succeeded in saving several criminals from hanging. In another case, circa 1830, a young man was charged with rape, and at the request of his father, Marie performed certain rituals. Supposedly the case was either dismissed or the young man acquitted, and Marie was rewarded with a cottage on Rue St. Anne. Only hearsay, of course. And she apparently had a sinister side as well. Apparently she placed a hex on a New Orleans businessman, J.B. Langrist, in the 1850s. Langrist supposedly provoked Marie's ire by publicly denouncing her and accusing her of everything from robbery to murder. Big mistake for him. Legend has it that Grigri, in the form of rooster's heads, began to appear on his doorstep. As a consequence, Langrast reportedly grew increasingly upset and eventually fled New Orleans as fast as horse and carriage could carry him. Getting back to Marie's youngest daughter and namesake, one of the famous legends about Marie Laveau is an often repeated one alleging her perpetual youth. According to a segment of America's Haunted Houses, which aired on the Discovery Channel in 1998, Marie was said to be over 100 years old when she died, and as beautiful as ever. And, it was reported, there were some unexplained and mysterious sightings of the great voodoo queen even after her death. People would swear on a stack of Bibles that they saw Marie Laveau herself. Indeed, he adds, a number of people say they were at a ritual in the summer of 1919 given by the Great Queen. We know that the first Marie died June 15, 1881. Her obituaries say she was then 98, although by real count, she was 87. Far from appearing to be a figure of eternal youth, 
Marie Laveau spent her last years, quote, old and shrunken, end quote, stripped of her memory and lying in the back room of her cottage. In her stead was her daughter, Marie Laveau, too. The younger Marie gradually took over her mother's business activities, which included, as legend has it, running a house on Lake Pontchartrain, train where rich Creole men could have appointments with young mulatto girls. That according to author Talat in 1946. The claim that Marie Laveau was active in 1919 is thought to have been based on a third Marie, possibly a granddaughter, or another voodoo queen with whom she was confused. In carrying on her mother's work, Marie too had business cards printed, billing her not as a voodoo yen, but as a healer, according again to author Talant, and he writes, The Laveau ways of performing homeopathic magic were endless. Sick people were often brought to the house to receive the benefit of a cure by Marie II. A person bitten by a snake was told to get another live snake of any sort, cut its head off while it was angry, and tie this head to the wound. This was to be left attached until sunrise of the following day. Sometimes her practices contained an element of medical truth, embracing the use of roots and herbs that contained genuine curative elements. For sprains and swellings, she used hot water containing Epsom salts and rubbed the injured parts with whiskey, chanting prayers and burning candles at the same time, of course. For other ailments, she administered castor oil to the accompaniment of incantations and prayer. Like other occult healers, Marie obviously took advantage not only of the occasional element of medical truth, but also other factors, including the body's own natural healing mechanisms, combined with the powerful effects of suggestion. Current voodoo practice in New Orleans is a mere shadow of what it was in its heyday, although an estimated 15% of the city's population supposedly still practices voodoo. It has largely been combined with Catholicism, which remains the dominant religion. It has also been influenced by spiritualist, Wiccan, and other occult and New Age beliefs. The most visible aspects of voodoo today are tours and attractions in the area of the Vieux Carré, or Old Square, popularly called the French Quarter. Laid out in 1721, it's the oldest surviving area of the city. But if you've been looking for a way to get even with an old enemy or maybe attract a member of the opposite sex who, up until now, doesn't even know you're alive, you need to head for New Orleans now and hit their souvenir shops. You'll find everything your little evil heart desires, starting with the voodoo doll, the best ones made of wax, to which, if your intention is to maim, you can add a wick along with a piece of your intended victim's hair or clothing and burn down the wick incrementally until you've achieved a sense of revenge stasis. Or just stick pins in different places and spy to see if your arch enemy has been suffering migraines or extreme abdominal pains. To attract a member of the opposite sex, pick up a love amulet and light some incense while you recite incantations for best results. You should be able to get out of there spending less than 150 easy. Or, better yet, wait until midnight, strip down, and run to the shores of Lake Pontchartrain shouting, I need a lover now, over and over. When the local gendarmes come, you didn't get that from us. Tell them you heard it on This American Life podcast. Back to the souvenir shops. Check out Marie Laveau's House of Voodoo, Reverend Zombie's Voodoo Shop, and the New Orleans Historic Voodoo Museum. The latter attraction is well worth seeing for its display of historic artifacts relating to voodoo and its practitioners, including, obviously, 
Marie Laveau. Time your visit to coincide with the annual voodoo rituals on St. John's Eve in June or Halloween and catch for higher performances offered as party entertainment. Walking tours of voodoo-related sites in the View Carré are also available daily. And you don't want to miss the Tomb of Marie Laveau, which is daily visited by hundreds, many of whom leave small items or gris-gris, along with a wish for help in all imaginable ways. Upon seeing her tomb, you'll be reminded that her popularity in this city of believers will never fade and stands as a wistful reminder of old Louisiana. Thanks for joining us with this episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Our show is listened to in over 150 countries and is available on the iTunes podcast app, which is available at your Apple App Store free of charge, as well as Stitcher.com. Our Twitter address is at 1001podcast, and our Facebook address is facebook.com forward slash 1001heroes. Best of all, you can listen to both our shows, 1001 Heroes and 1001 Classic Short Stories at, and write this one down, www.1001storiespodcast.com, which I'm very proud of. To me, America is the last best hope on earth, and its enriched melting pot history and culture is a bottomless source of entertainment and stories. You are the best fans in the world. Thanks. Many great stories to come, I promise.